welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Peninsula Securities Limited and Dunn's Stores Limited. The citation for this case is 2020 UKSC 36. And the case that we're looking at this week begins with the development of a shopping centre in Derry, Northern Ireland. In order to attract a range of different shops and retailers, the developer, Mr Shortall, wanted to find an anchor tenant. This is a large, big-name store that would commit to the shopping centre in return for favourable terms on a lease. With that in mind, Shortall turned to Dunn's stores, which might seem like a surprising choice for a flagship at first, as most people in the UK will probably not have heard of this shop before. That is because Dunn's is a Dublin-based retailer that has much more prominence in the south of Ireland than the north. To give you an idea about their size and what they sell, I would say that their closest equivalent in the UK is probably Marks and Spencers, but maybe a listener who has more familiarity with Dunn's has a better comparison. Anyway, it doesn't matter that much, because the point is that as part of the lease, the developer covenanted that there would never be a unit in the shopping centre larger than 3,000 square feet that would sell food or textiles, therefore giving a significant advantage to Dunn's at the location. At first everything was going fine, Dunn's put their store together and the shopping centre opened. Unfortunately, as we have seen in recent years, shopping centres aren't the economic proposition or attraction that they used to be, and the centre in Derry began to suffer. By this time, Shortall had importantly assigned the freehold interest in the property, as well as the burden of the covenant, to the company that is the respondent in this case, Peninsula Securities. In practical terms, this didn't make much difference because the company was owned by Shortall's wife, but was managed by Shortall himself. However, it did make a difference in the context of the claim that was subsequently brought by Peninsula against Dunn's that forms the basis of the case featured in this episode. The claim states that the covenant to not permit a competitor to Dunn's in the shopping centre represents a restraint of trade and is therefore unenforceable at common law. As a quick reminder at this point, the doctrine of restraint of trade basically says that an individual or a company should be allowed to practice their trade without undue interference. So Peninsula are arguing that the covenant is invalid because it gets in the way of how they transact their business, and they should be allowed to lease a unit to another retailer in the shopping centre, even if that retailer would be a direct competitor to Dunn's. In the High Court, the judge followed the classic case of Esso Petroleum Company Limited and Harper's Garage Limited from 1968, which essentially asks whether the claimant had, by entering into the covenant, surrendered a pre-existing freedom of theirs to use the land. She found that Mr Shortall certainly had surrendered such a freedom, but Peninsula had not, and so the restraint of trade doctrine was only engaged until the freehold interest and the burden of the covenant was assigned to Peninsula. Peninsula successfully appealed, as it was held by the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal, that the doctrine applied both before and after the assignment. Dunn's now appeals to the Supreme Court, and that is where we pick things up. The aim of this particular judgement, at least according to its author Lord Wilson, is to really dive into that decision in the Esso case and critique the idea that restraint of trade can be invoked when a party surrenders a pre-existing freedom. That idea itself has commonly been regarded as resting on a very weak footing. It has been criticised in many academic works, and almost completely abandoned in other Commonwealth countries like Australia and Canada. 
For those of you who are not aware of the background to the Esso case, the owner of two petrol stations had agreed to only buy petrol from Esso, but later tried to get out of those so-called solus agreements by arguing that it was a restraint of trade. In a majority decision, the House of Lords followed Lord Reed, who developed the pre-existing freedom test, so a covenant that restricts the use of land will represent a restraint of trade if the covenanter has given up some freedom that he otherwise would have had. In the same case, Lord Wilberforce also developed another test called the Trading Society Test, whereby the restraint of trade doctrine will not be engaged if the covenant which restricts the use of land has, quote, passed into the accepted and normal currency of commercial or contractual or conveyancing relations, end quote. To put it another way, an agreement will not be a restraint of trade if it satisfies a test of public policy. In any case, the pre-existing freedom test has undergone a lot of scrutiny over the years, and one of the main criticisms is the lack of consistency it offers. After all, it seems unfair that the doctrine is engaged when someone has a pre-existing freedom, but fails to be engaged when they don't. It was with that in mind that the Supreme Court decided to make a very rare use of the 1966 practice statement and formally overruled the decision in Esso and Harper's Garage, and, therefore, the pre-existing freedom test as well. To quote Lord Wilson in full, the test, quote, has no principled place within the doctrine, that it has been consistently criticised for over 50 years, and, although in some quarters loyally applied, the reasoning behind it has, to the best of my knowledge, scarcely been defended, and that the common law has been limping between the continuing authority of the test in our jurisdiction and its rejection in Australia and in parts of Canada. End quote. On the other hand, the Trading Society test originally advocated by Lord Wilberforce can be applied consistently and fairly, as it simply asks whether the restriction is a part of normal business practice. This element of the judgment can be retained, and if we apply it in this case, it is actually fairly straightforward to say that these types of covenants are fairly common in the context of shopping centres. In fact, at the start of this episode, we talked about how Shortall wanted to attract Dunn's as an anchor retailer, and offered the covenant as part of an incentive. Taking that into account, the justices were able to say with confidence that the restraint of trade doctrine was not engaged for either Shortall or Peninsula. Before we finish up with this judgement and move on to our own analysis, there are a couple of other points briefly worth picking up on. First of all, Lord Carnworth gave a concurring judgement where he noted that the restraint of trade doctrine is something that should be viewed carefully and not extended without careful consideration. The important thing is to bear in mind what will happen in practical reality and any subsequent effect on public policy. To put it another way, is there actually any trade that has been restrained by the Covenant? The only example that Lord Carnworth could think of is the restriction on the trade by a potential future retailer at the shopping centre, but it is clearly not practical for the law to operate on the basis of something that only might happen. In fact, from the perspective of Shortall, this didn't restrict his trade, but rather secured an anchor retailer for the shopping centre and therefore enhanced his commercial prospects. Finally, Peninsula has also sought another remedy by way of the property Northern Ireland Order 1978. This gives a judge the power to modify or even extinguish a covenant if it represents an interference with the enjoyment of land. The Supreme Court did not itself make a judgment on this question, 
but did note that this would be a more appropriate vehicle for the claim. Anyway, for our analysis, we're going to focus on these proceedings, and in particular the decision to overrule Esso and Harper's Garage. I think that this deserves special attention because use of the practice statement is especially rare, and years will often go by without it coming up at all in the Supreme Court. This podcast has been going for four years at this point, and I don't think it has come up before, although my memory is certainly not perfect. Traditionally, one of the core principles that underpins our legal system is stare decisis, and that literally translates as stand decided, meaning that once a decision has been made, all other cases that have sufficiently similar facts should be decided in the same way. Doing so offers legal certainty and has special resonance in common law systems like our own. Using the practice statement to step away from this principle undermines it and should always be viewed with great suspicion. To use a current example from across the Atlantic, the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett for the US Supreme Court are centering on whether she would decide to overturn the landmark decision in Roe v. Wade that secured abortion rights for pregnant women. Clearly upsetting the system of precedent can have massive political and cultural implications. I don't think that is the case here. How land is used and the restraint of trade doctrine in general is an important issue that affects other areas as well, such as employment and commerce, but it doesn't have the same impact as abortion rights. While that means we can't just start overturning case law left, right and centre, it does give a bit of flexibility to the UK Supreme Court, especially in this context of a judgement that has been consistently criticised for more than 50 years at this point. I don't need to rehash that criticism here because the justices did a fine job of that in the judgement itself, but as a general point I think it is worth expanding on something that came up in Lord Carnworth's concurring judgement. Restraint of trade is a doctrine that ought to be minimised as much as possible, and is not an area of the law that is ripe for expansion. The reason for this is that another key principle of commerce and the English legal system is freedom of contract. When any two people or companies enter into a deal, they should be free to do so on the terms that they choose, so long as they have the capacity to do so. Now there will always be some exceptions to this, for example a person could not voluntarily sell themselves into slavery or contract to commit a murder, as there are obvious public policy reasons why this should not be allowed. However, in general, it is a principle that ought to be preserved as much as possible, and the restraint of trade doctrine gets in the way of that. If the courts can simply remove covenants and other promises within a contract that one of the parties has suddenly decided that they don't like anymore, then it undermines both the freedom to contract and some of the certainty in commercial relationships. It might be going too far to say that courts should not touch restraint of trade clauses at all, but I would suggest that any movement in that direction is likely a positive one. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. A quick note from me before I go, if you are now back into your studies, whether that's first year, second year or third year, I'm sure that there will be videos on my YouTube channel that will help you out, so do remember to check that out at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver, or you can see the full range at uklawweekly.com. Anyway, I'll be back with another episode next week. For now, bye! Bye.